Thank you very much, and welcome everybody to a Curiosity Media Telecon for Wednesday, February 20th. I'm Jane Platt with the Media Relations Office at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Today we're going to hear details about Curiosity's latest milestone, collecting a sample from the interior of a Martian rock. We have five speakers you'll hear from with brief presentations, and then we'll take reporter Q&A. Visuals for today's briefing are online at http colon slash slash go dot nasa dot gov slash curiosity telecon. That's http colon slash slash go dot nasa dot gov slash curiosity telecon. Going to quickly introduce today's speakers. All of them are with JPL. We have Scott McCluskey, a rover planner and drill systems engineer for Curiosity. We have Avi Okan, the rover planner and drill cognizant engineer for Curiosity. We have Luis Jandura, sample system chief engineer for Curiosity. We have Daniel Limonati, lead systems engineer for Curiosity's surface sampling and science system. And Joel Hurwitz, the sampling system scientist for Curiosity. And we're going to start out with Scott McCloskey. Thank you. Today we received sample. Uh, sorry. Today we received confirmation from Curiosity that the drill has drill sample has made it into the scoop. Our first graphic, McCloskey One, shows a mass cam image of the drilled sample in the scoop. Seeing the powder from the drill in the scoop allows us to verify for the first time that the drill successfully acquired sample as it was boring down into the rock. Based on this picture, we estimate that we collected about a tablespoon of powder, which meets our expectations and is a great result. Uh, we're all very happy to get this confirmation and relieved that the, the drilling was a complete success. The powder shown in this image is the powder that was used to clean the internal surfaces of the drill bit. The second graphic that we have, McCloskey 2, uh, on the right side shows a cross-section of the drill bit. And here you can see the internal surfaces of the drill that we were scrubbing with the sample. While, while we're running the drill, sample is collected into chamber one. And then after drilling, sample is passed from the drill through the second chamber to Chimera, our sample processing device. The next graphic, McCloskey 3, is an, is an animation and shows the rover's first drilling operation at 25 times uh, real time. The black halo around the drill illustrates when the drill motor is active. And uh, the, the drill hammering mechanism is running both at the beginning when we're acquiring sample and then later when we're processing the sample. Uh, next up, Avi will describe more about how the, the drilling operation works. Uh, the, the later parts of this animation show the steps uh, where we scrub the internal chambers of the drill by moving the arm while running the hammering percussion mechanism of the drill. Some of these moves occur in front of the rover immediately after the drilling operation, followed by a close-up inspection of the hole we had just drilled with the uh, Molly imager. And then we move the arm back to the side of the rover to complete the remaining uh, scrubbing, scrubbing and transfer moves. The orange halo that you'll see in this video represents the vibration mechanism in the Chimera subsystem. The cleaning and transfer steps shown in this video took a little bit longer than expected despite our thorough testing uh, because we encountered a couple of software bugs during these activities 
that caused us to pause. N none of these caused any harm to the rover, uh, and the team was able to develop workaround techniques to continue processing the sample uh, and avoiding uh, the software glitches. And finally, the end of the, anima end of the animation shows the sample being moved towards the scoop where it is imaged by the uh, mass cam, and that's what we saw at the beginning of, of this presentation. Um, Avi will now talk more about how the drill worked and how it acquired the sample in the first place. Great. Thank you, Scott. <clears throat> so a few days ago, we verified that the execution of Curiosity's first full drill depth hole on Mars. We look at OCON-1, this image was taken by the MOLLE instrument, shows the drill shows the drilled hole and some of the cuttings that were not collected by the drill that remain on the rock surface. If you notice, there's a subtle depression in the cuttings pile around the hole where the drill bit assembly made contact with the rock surface when the drill was at its uh, maximum depth. <clears throat> the drill bit achieved a total depth of 6.4 centimeters, which ensured that we had acquired sample from at least five centimeters around two inches below the surface. On that same sole, the first part of our drill that cleaning uh, internal scrubbing was performed as Scott outlined. Now I'm going to take you through the drill system that enabled this sample acquisition. If we go to illustration OCON2, this shows uh, Curiosity's turret of tools and instruments that are, that are situated at the end of the robotic arm. In the middle of the turret sits Curiosity's custom-built heavy-duty rotary percussive drill. The drill bit is facing the camera and is flanked by two contact sensors and stabilizer prongs. We go to the next graphic, OCON3. This shows an illustration of the drill bit assembly on the left. And it's, uh, the drill is comprised of multiple mechanisms and sensors that work in concert to perform the sample acquisition operation. The coordination of these functions is controlled by software and sequences that were designed specifically for drilling on Mars. The graphic on the right, which Scott mentioned earlier, shows a cross-section of the drill bit assembly. The drill cuttings are collected via the smooth tube that surrounds the fluted section of the spinning bit. Sample is acquired by the drill once the collection tube is below the rock surface, starting about 20 millimeters of depth. The, hammer, uh, the drill uh, hammers, rotates, and feeds the bit into the rock to acquire the sample. The bit has two chambers that hold the rock powder during the drilling operation before it is transferred to the sampling processing device, Chimera. Curiosity has two spare bits assemblies on board mounted on the rover front panel. If we go to OCON4 uh, image, here we see an animation comprised of snapshots from the, uh, uh, from the full drill operation with Mount Sharp in the distance. These were taken by the uh, HazCam uh, cameras on the rover. First, you'll see a pre-drill MOLLE image taken of the target. Then the drill was placed into contact with the rock by the robotic arm and was preloaded onto the rock by the arm for increased stability reducing their likelihood of shifting during the drilling operation. To create the hole and acquire the sample, the drill extended the bit to locate the surface of the rock. Then the drill performed a start hole operation to create a shallow pilot hole. The drill acquired the sample by rotating and hammering the bit continuously while feeding the bit into the rock. Upon the completion of the sample acquisition, the drill retracted from the hole to a stow configuration which was removed from the rock by the arm. Then the robotic arm performed some cleaning maneuvers and took taking that Molly image that we've seen in OCON 1. And let's take a look back at that OCON 1 image once again. And I know a lot of Curiosity fans have been waiting eagerly, waiting for weeks and months to see, to see this, and many of us on the team have been prepping for this for many years. 
So you can imagine how happy it makes us to have finally achieved this milestone. Now Louise Jandura will put uh, this curiosity's first drill hold into, in, on Mars into historical context. Thank you, Albie. Well, Curiosity's first drill hole at the John Klein site is a historic moment for the MSL mission, for JPL, NASA, and the United States. This is the first time any robot, fixed or mobile, has drilled into a rock to collect a sample on Mars. In fact, this is the first time any rover has drilled into a rock to collect a sample anywhere but on Earth. In the five-decade history of the space age, this is indeed a rare event. In the early 70s, Apollo astronauts used handheld drills, electric drills, on the moon. In that same time period and going through the early 80s, the Soviet Union had unmanned missions to both the moon and Venus that used drills from landers. No space mission since then has used a drill on a rock. If you will refer to my first graphic, Jandura 1, you can see the handiwork of NASA's most recent missions to the surface of Mars. Going from left to right, uh, an image from the rover's Spirit and Opportunity, Phoenix in the middle, and on the right, Curiosity. Each of these missions had very capable tools to interact with the surface and support their science payload. The rover's Spirit and Opportunity each carried a rock abrasion tool to grind away the surface layer of the rocks to allow for investigation by instruments. On Phoenix, the scoop had a rasp to break up frozen soil so it could be picked up by the scoop and put into instruments for analysis. And now Curiosity has her drill. Having a rock drilling capability on a rover is a significant advancement in our ability to investigate Mars. It allows us to go beyond the surface layer of the rock, unlocking a kind of time capsule of evidence about the state of Mars going back three or four billion years. Because the drill is on a rover, the rock choices are plentiful. Using our roving geologist curiosity, the scientists can choose the rock, get inside the rock, and deliver the powdered sample to instruments on the rover for analysis. Now I'd ask you to turn to my Jandura 2 graphic. Getting to this new drilling capability on Mars required an extensive development and testing program. To get to the point of making this first hole in a rock on Mars, we made eight drills and bored more than 1,200 holes in 20 types of rock on Earth. You see a small fraction of the, these holes in this picture. It has been both an exciting and challenging journey. My own personal journey is approaching eight years, and along the way I've had the pleasure of working with a group of created, dedicated, and joyful people who have collectively turned a blank sheet of paper into a working tool on Mars. We couldn't all be happier, and I couldn't be more proud of each and every one of them. In a minute, Daniel will tell you more about how we use what we learned from testing. But before that, I'd like to leave you with my last graphic, Jandura 3. Be sure to turn the sound up on your computer for this one. It's a short video clip recorded during a drilling demonstration to the science team using Curiosity's test double. It was shot here at JPL in Pasadena. But perhaps, if you allow your mind to wander as you watch and listen, you can experience a little of what it would have been like to be with Curiosity as she drilled her first hole on Mars. And now to Daniel. Thanks, Louise. All right, so as you've heard, the extensive Earth testing that Louise mentioned has alerted us to a potential issue that we're taking proactive steps to prevent becoming a problem on Curiosity. In one of our Chimera units, we've seen a sieve membrane come loose after extensive use. 
So if you jump to Limunati 1, uh, just a reminder from the Scoop campaign for those of you that were here, um, we're looking at a picture of the turret again on the left-hand side. Um, Avi and Scott talked about the drill, which you find in the middle. And bolted onto that drill is Chimera, kind of our martini mixer um, on the spacecraft. And um, the, the picture on the right is a cutaway view of Chimera that shows you kind of what the sample is doing in a little bit more detail when it comes from the drill. So you see the sample transfer tube um, where the material enters, uh, follows that pink path in the black arrows, um, crosses that green surface that is the 150 micrometer sieve, um, and then makes it into the blue area, which is the tunnel, and into the portion box. And so the um, piece of hardware in question is that 150 micrometer sieve. And so if you go to Illuminati 2, this is now a picture from Mars using the mass cam, the uh, awesome mass cam cameras that we have on board. And it shows you kind of cracked open Chimera um, with the 150 micrometer sieve uh, in plain view. And uh, you also see along the edge there um, kind of an edge weld area that keeps the sieve attached to the primary structure. And so the, the reason we have that sieve on board is to um, take our samples and filter out materials that are bigger than 150 micrometers. Um, this is done because the Kemen instrument needs uh, very fine particles for it to do its X-ray diffraction work. Uh, the SAM instrument can actually handle particles up to 1 millimeter, and we have a redundant um, 1 millimeter sieve elsewhere in Chimera that we're not going to talk about today. Um, okay, so a little bit more about the fault. Uh, we have three identified identical copies of Chimera, two Earth test units and one on Mars. Um, we've only seen the problem in one of the Earth test units to date. As you can see from Illuminati 2, again, that sieve is perfectly healthy. and There's no issues with it. Um, and so, again, back on Illuminati 2, the edge welds, what's specifically happening is on one of the Earth test units, those edge welds are popping and slowly unzipping the sieve from the primary structure in Chimera um, over time. And it turns out that the fault didn't happen until well into the test program, and um, we got extensive use of the membrane of the sieve even after the fault started all the way um, through what we would expect to be the prime mission uh, life exposure and beyond. Um, we have several theories as far as about why those welds might be popping, um, but we have not converged on one particular root cause yet. Um, and it's also important to note that we've used this test unit in question um, more than the flight copy um, will be used during the prime mission, as I indicated. And Again, just to reemphasize, even after the fault started, um, the unit had another roughly half of its life to go. It still functioned perfectly fine, even with the fault initiated um, through the rest of its test program past one prime mission life. And the second Earth test unit we have in our system test bed has shown no signs of this fault, um, even though it's had roughly the same amount of wear and tear placed on it. So we have kind of a... You know, again, a bunch of different things going on. We're still trying to figure out why exactly the one test unit um, exhibited the problem. So uh, given this kind of reason to be cautious, right, is effectively what our test program is telling us is, hey, there might be an issue here. It may, not, may or may not apply to flight. Um, we're taking the conservative tack. And during the John Klein sampling campaign, we are reducing the amount of wear and tear we're putting on the hardware to achieve our sample processing activities. We've shortened our sieve, sieving time, um, and we will, we're kind of reducing or eliminating how many times we thwack the hardware um, to help 
minimize whatever might be going on with the hardware here and extend the life. Uh, one other thing we did as a partial mitigation, but also uh, for science reasons, was that we are this first drill hole that John uh, at John Klein that Avi and Scott talked about. We're going straight to Sam and Kemen from that first drill hole. Uh, after talking about it internally with the team, um, even though we know the sample will be a little bit uh, more contaminated with residual earth material than we were than I guess the spec effectively. Um, the science instruments were interested in kind of seeing how the earth contamination slowly dies away as we clean the hardware um, over multiple drilling cycles. So there was good scientific reason for taking that first sample. Okay, so while we can't be certain at this point, with these mitigations in place, we expect that we have a very good chance of having the sieve remain functional through the prime mission and likely long beyond the prime mission. With that, I'm going to hand it off to Joel, who will be talking about the cool science behind the rocks we're looking at and what we hope to learn from them. Great. <clears throat> Thanks, Daniel. I, I uh, just wanted to close by uh, spending a couple minutes describing the bedrock we just finished drilling into. Um, and so we can kind of set the stage by standing back and looking at the big picture of what we've been up to here in Yellowknife Bay. So if you pull up uh, figure Hurwitz 1, uh, you'll see this beautiful panoramic image that was collected by Curiosity's right mass cam, uh, looking back towards uh, Curiosity's landing site uh, at the local bedrock. And annotated on this image is the location of two work areas uh, that are separated by about 5 meters or 16 feet from one another. On the left is a place called the Selwyn section, and what we see there is about 3 meters or 10 feet of outcrop sitting beneath a ledge of more resistant rock. And the Selwyn section is where we got our first really good detailed look at the bedrock in this area. And what we found there at Selwyn is that these rocks appear to be sedimentary in origin and more than likely deposited in water as, to as opposed to something like aeolian deposits where the fluid that moves the sediment uh, is air. So this is you know, reason for us to be pretty uh, excited here. If you sort of pan over to the right, uh, and you'll, you'll see uh, the John Klein area, and that's the spot where we actually performed the drilling operation that was described earlier. Um, the reason we chose to drill at John Klein rather than at Selwyn is that we wanted to get sort of a flatter, more stable drilling location to perform our first-time activity. Uh, the tilts at Selwyn were a little bit higher uh, than we would have liked for a first-time uh, operation. And fortunately, it turns out the rocks at John Klein have proven to be more or less identical to what we saw over at Selwyn. Now, just to give you sort of a sense of how much work the team has been doing to characterize the textural and chemical properties of these rocks, between these two work areas, we've collected somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 analyses with the alpha particle X-ray spectrometer, uh, over 100 images with the Molly hand lens imager, and somewhere uh, over 12,000 laser shots with the ChemCam instrument. So we've done quite a lot of work here. Um, and this has really allowed the science team to select what we think is the ideal location for our first time drilling activity on Mars, which is shown in uh, figure Hurwitz number two. This figure is another MassCam mosaic of our workspace at John Klein, with a number of targets where we continued our investigation and preparation for drilling. And ultimately, we ended up putting our drill hole in the target that was appropriately named drill. Um, if you sort of take your focus off of the annotated targets and just look at the local geology here, 
you'll see a number of really interesting features in the work area. Um, there are large plates of bedrock. They're separated by soil. Uh, there are high-standing veins that cut across the bedrock. And there's lots of spherical nodules that are embedded in the outcrop that you can really notice when you sort of zoom in uh, to the higher resolutions. All of these features tell us that the rocks in this area have a really rich geological history. And they have the potential to give us information about multiple interactions between water and rock at this location. If we move to uh, Hurwitz, uh, figure Hurwitz number three, we zoom in even a little bit closer, uh, in this case on a target called Wernicke. And this shows what these rocks look like from the perspective of the Mali instrument. And what we see has the team really excited. Uh, this particular target has been brushed clean of dust by the dust removal tool. And we then analyzed this rock with the ChemCam instrument, which left its telltale pits in the ground at the spots where we zapped the rock with, its la uh, with our laser. Um, you'll notice if you kind of look around the scene here that there are uh, a number of different kinds of veins and you know, spherical features that, uh, that are in the rock. Some are white, some are gray. They're all filled probably with different materials. Um, in the case of the white material, we're pretty confident we've found a form of calcium sulfate, but the team is still working hard to figure out what the gray stuff is made out of. But I think the critical observation here is that these appear to be fine-grained rocks. Um, a lot of the grains uh, in this image are too small to resolve, even with the high-resolution capabilities of Mali suggesting that this is uh, a, either a siltstone or a mudstone, something of that um, grain size nature. Um, and to have as our first drill target a fine-grained rock that could have been deposited in water is something we really couldn't be happier about. So just in closing, um, you know, as Luis said, this, this drilling operation we just completed allows us to get beneath the surface and analyze for the first time rock samples that have not been exposed to the effects of the Martian surface environment and truly understand the chemistry and mineralogy of a Martian rock. Um, the science team is just super excited to find out what Kemen and Sam will have to say about the mineralogy and chemistry of this material and what it means for the geologic history and habitability of Gale Crater. And with that, I'll turn it back to Jane. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Joel, and thanks to all our panelists. And now we're going to go to reporter uh, Q&A, and if you do have a question, please press star 1, and you'll be giving the operator your name and affiliation, and she'll put you in the queue so we can call on you. And um, again, we're gonna, we have five, five speakers here, so I want to remind uh, the panelists if the question is um, not directed specifically towards you by name to identify yourself when you respond. And I should mention we also have on the line Curiosity Project Manager John Grotzinger, who's ailing with a cold but has uh, agreed to be on the line with us. And I will point out that uh, this telecon, in case you would like to later on go back and hear it, it will be archived for one week, and I will give you those numbers at the end of the telecon. Uh, let's see. We have some questions, and we're going to start with Bill Harwood of CBS News. Bill? And I'm sorry that I have the first question because it really should probably be the last question, and it's for John. And I, I just was wondering, how many drill operations do you guys envision in this area, and when will the rover move uh, to any different targets away from this area? Thanks, uh, Bill. We're just gonna we're gonna take it one step at a time, and uh, you know we'll do, we'll do we got this first sample, we'll process it, and and. 
Okay, the next question is Clayton Sandell from ABC News. Yeah, I was wondering if uh, you have any preliminary results you can talk about uh, from the, from this sample. Has it been able to tell you anything yet? And if not, uh, when will you guys be ready to uh, to make an announcement to talk about it? Uh, so this is Joel uh, speaking, and so. Right now, the sample is sitting in the scoop, uh, and so what we have are, are images of it. We have not yet passed the sample off to uh, the SAM or Chemin instruments yet, and so we'll really get a, 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 a thorough understanding of, of what these materials are made of once we do that sample transfer operation and analysis. So uh, I guess I would say uh, stay tuned. Uh, results are coming shortly. <laughs> Okay, the next question is from Popular Mechanics and Steve Rousseau, who I hope I pronounced your name right. Uh, you did. Uh, this first question is actually for Scott. Um, I was just hoping you could kind of elaborate a little more on the software glitches you guys experienced. Uh, sure. So the, the glitches that we ran into are related to our uh, motor control subsystem, and they're, they're the sorts of things that came up in the specific circumstances that we were operating in uh, here on Mars and with the specific timing uh, of the different motions that were executed on the rover. Um, they're, they're the sorts of things that once we once we got a chance to investigate them, we were able to very quickly uh, converge on what was happening and uh, come up with workarounds that allowed us to continue operating with full functionality. Uh, and so um, it, it didn't end up being a significant roadblock to, to getting this done. Um, and I have one more question uh, for Louise. Uh, earlier you mentioned that drilling into the rocks is uh, kind of like a time capsule. Can you elaborate a little more on what that means? Sure. Um, I think, although I might direct it uh, shortly after my brief response to Joel, who I think from a science perspective can um, really elaborate on this, but going beyond that surface of the rock gets us behind or under all the uh, environmental exposure that the rest of the top layers of Mars have been seeing. Once we get inside the rock, we uh, get to look at, with our instruments, uh, powder that we bring up that, that hasn't been affected by some of these other uh, weathering processes. And I'll maybe, if it's okay with you, hand it over to Joel to maybe elaborate a little further. Yeah, um, and I think, you know, the, the time capsule aspect is, is it's a great analogy. It, these rocks are potentially ancient rocks that preserve some record of the environment in which they formed. And so that is sort of our, uh, our, our time capsule, in a sense, is, is, um, is, is the rocks themselves. And, and the fact that we're able to, you know, get into the interior of these materials and sort of uh, get beneath this, this potentially, you know, uh, surface environment affected part of the rock and really understand, um, you know, the environment these rocks were, were formed in uh, is, is a really fantastic capability that the Curiosity drill uh, gives us. Okay, we're going to go now to a question from Alan Boyle, NBC News. Hi. Um, I guess a couple of questions I don't know who would be best to answer, but uh, one is that uh, it sounds as if you used some samples to uh, clean out the plumbing, and uh, but that the sample that we're looking at in the picture is 
the one that will be passed along to Sam and Kemen for analysis. So I just wanted to make sure I had that right. And also, uh, some folks have talked about the color of the rock, and, and uh, you know, it's not red. Uh, is there any expectation that uh, that the analysis will come up with the idea that uh, that there are more Earth-like processes going on? I, I know it's rather early to tell about that, but uh, anything that you can say just on, based on the initial inspection of the rock and the powder would be appreciated. All right, uh, this is Scott McCloskey. I'll, I'll take the first part of your question. So this sample that we see in the scoop today, uh, this is the, the one sample that we've collected to date. And this is the sample was used both to flush through the, the drill and also is being passed to the instruments. So this initial sample uh, is being used for both purposes. Um, subsequent samples would um, potentially be given straight to the instruments without doing the, the flushing moves and would then be uh, have a lower uh, terrestrial contamination level than this first sample. Uh, I'll turn turn over to Joel to answer the second part of your question. Yeah, well, it's a it's a great observation. Uh, this, this is something that uh, you know the the science team is is really excited about is is the fact that you know the the tailings from our drill operation aren't sort of the typical rusty orange red that we associate with just about everything on Mars. Um, and, you know, you, you can probably bet that the, you know, when things turn orange, it's because there's a, a rusty, a rusting process of some kind going on that, that oxidizes the iron in the rock. So the fact that these rocks aren't that color may be telling us that these rocks didn't go through that, that process that, that usually turns things to rust on Mars. Um, and so it, it may, it may preserve, uh, some indication of what iron was doing uh, in these samples, um, without the effect of some, you know, later uh, oxidative process that would have, you know, rusted the rocks into the orange color that is sort of typical of Mars. Okay, our next question is going to come from Pete Spots at the Christian Science Monitor. Well, thank you so much for doing this, uh, and I, I guess maybe this is for John. Um, if you can, if you can bear the bear the uh, bear it with the cold there. Um, uh, if if I remember correctly, this was in effect the last step in the commissioning process. I, I realize you folks have been, you know, doing double duty with uh, with what you've been getting as you've been bringing these uh, uh, systems gradually online. But I wonder if you could just, you know, just how does it feel to be through finally through this, uh, or at least maybe mostly through this this commissioning process? It, it uh, would seem to be a, a turning point in that sense as well. Oh, it's a it's a real big turning point for us. Uh, you know, I had fun with uh, Richard Cook and, and Mike Watkins last week uh, when they sort of had a passing of the keys of the rover to the science team. And um, but you know the and we, and we are excited uh, because every time we took off uh, another one of these first time activities, and and basically from here on out with the sample, uh, what we're going to do is we as we dump it into. Uh, uh, Kemen and Sam is a repeat of something we've done before. So with that, you know, comes a more confidence, uh, a, a chance of fewer surprises, and 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 an increase in the efficiency of which we'll be able to do all this. So we're very excited to move on beyond that. But at the same time, uh, I, it was never uh, not a goal of ours to to want to land uh, where we did, uh, look around. 
around at what our options were, and and we did make the deliberate decision to drive in the opposite direction because uh, we had a bit more than a hunch that that this this place might uh, this may this place might turn out real well. So as as Joel said, uh, you know, we were excited, and and our geological model that we were working with uh, suggested that we did uh, have sedimentary deposits that that likely formed in water. Uh, but we had no idea we were going to find the rest of this stuff. All these filled fractures, uh, the, the gray things that Joel was referring to, that look like concretions. Uh, so when when we got this down, it was it was really a great uh, uh, surprise to get before the holidays. So uh, you know we'll just keep picking our way through it. But uh, you know, like I said before, when when we first uh, showed you guys this stuff back in January. Um, if the spacecraft had gone long on EDL and we would have wound up on the flank of Mount Sharp and we would have found stuff like this, you know, we, we, we would have considered it to be uh, very much the, the stuff that we chose the landing site to go find. Thank you. Next, we'll go to Ken Kramer of Space Flight Magazine. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, I have uh, two questions, maybe for, for at least initially for John. Um, based on what you know now, John, do you think um, the prospect is more likely that you'll take more than one drill sample, and will also take uh, will you also take some soil samples? And can you also describe the the drilling? Did you drill directly into a vein on the side of the vein? Is it calcium sulfate? You know anything about the hydration state? Thank you. Yeah, Ken. So I'll I'll just answer quickly and turn it back to Joel, who's leaving the show here today. I I, I think that you know, uh, like I said to Bill at the very beginning, we we're gonna we have to take this one step at a time. We have to see what we find, and then based on that, uh, being discovery driven is is determines what what we do next here. Um, and and with that, I'll let Joel describe the selection of of the drill hole. Yeah, um, and, and so it, as far as the. Um, the selection of, of the drill hole, it, you know, we, we essentially wanted to make sure that we were, you know, well-centered in a large plate of, of bedrock where we knew we could place the drill into a, a stable location on an interesting rock. Um, we didn't specifically target uh, the veins or nodular features that you see in the rock, um, but, you know, what's interesting is is that these rocks are so sort of shot through with these features that it's, it's uh, it, it's hard to imagine that we would have we would have missed uh, these materials somewhere along the the travel of of the drill, and so I, I think you know we'll find out what's in these materials uh, once we get the the sample into into Sam and Chem in, and then if we we think that we're sort of missing a component of the rock that we know is there, but for some reason just didn't show up in the in the mineralogy, then we'll consider. Uh, you know, additional drill targets that might bias us towards these other um, features like, you know, white veins or gray nodules or, or things of that nature. So so is it calcium sulfate, and do you know anything about the hydration state? Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, the, the white stuff we believe is calcium sulfate on the basis of uh, data that's been collected by uh, ChemCam and, and APXS. Uh, we don't know the hydration state uh, of that material yet. Um, hopefully, uh, Kemen will provide us with that information. Thank you. Okay, and we do have um, quite a few reporters waiting to ask questions, so thanks for your patience, those of you who are still in the queue. We're going to take our next question from Craig Kovalt of spacerep.com. Hi, thanks. Uh, for Grotz here to start, um, or 
what is the outlet now and whether you'll deliver to both at about the same time or one or the other first. Uh, Joe, go ahead and take that one. Sorry, can, can we? Right. See, this is Daniel. I'm going to jump in and take that if that's okay, John. Uh, so, Craig, the order of events um, is roughly as follows. Uh, we're going to sieve the material next. Uh, for about 20 minutes, we're going to take a picture of that to confirm we got enough material through the sieve. We've got a go/no-go -no -go cycle there. Then we then we're going to drop off to Kemen, um, and then the, after that, we're going to drop off to Sam. Those will be on separate days. Um, those roughly have go/no-go -no -go decisions between each of those those days, and um, you know that'll play out over the next next few days here. And a separate question: It is is for Grotz. Uh, if this, in fact, proves to be a, a mudstone and, and not a basaltic content mudstone, I realize this is a, a very qualitative question at this time, but what, what is your um, characterization of it as for the ability to have preserved uh, organics? Uh, well, uh, you know, Craig, that is that is one of the, the big questions that we're asking uh, with the, of the payload here. I, I would start by just reminding us all of the definition, which is mudstone research, re, re, uh, is, um, uh, refers to a, a size of material that consists of clay-sized uh, fragments, and clay is a size definition as well here, and, and silt size. So you combine those two together, you get a mudstone. So you know, compositionally, based on the APXS data that we've got now, uh, it does have sort of average basaltic uh, bulk composition, and and I guess that's you know that's not really a surprise. Uh, the question is mineralogically, how do you distribute those elements? So that that's that's the first thing that we're really going to be looking forward to, is to see what minerals those elements are are distributed in, and uh, and then after that, uh, you know, it's it's a process that we that we do exactly on Earth. Uh, when we get to an ancient outcrop, uh, that we just have to take all the observations together, uh, including the textures, including chemistry, including the mineralogy, and and basically try to find the most uh, you know uh, best fit interpretation to to figure out exactly how, in this case, the, the mudstone was actually deposited, what environment it was in. But uh, you know all those things eventually factor into uh, whether or not, uh, you know, this was a habitable environment or not. All right. We're going to take a question now from Irish TV and Leo Enright. Thanks very much, Jane. Uh, a couple of questions for Joel, if I may. Uh, just looking at the, uh, the, the scene of the drill uh, and, and this very distinctive pattern, uh, the, the square pattern of the rocks, uh, I mean, can you at this stage even speculate about what might be causing that? Are we talking here about something that typically on Earth would be caused by hydraulic fracturing? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's one of the possibilities that is being explored by the, by the science team. We, I, um, you know, we've uh, actually just completed our uh, a science team meeting, and, you know, it's clear that the that the scientists are, are sort of grappling with the explanation for why these rocks are fractured in the way that they are. And so uh, hydraulic fracturing might be a possibility. Another possibility is that this represents some sort of a, you know, a desiccation process where the, 
where the rocks contracted as they dried out. Um, I, I think that the you know the fact of the matter is we we haven't settled on uh, you know a, a, a single explanation for why this fracture pattern exists uh, the way it does. It, it may be something as as sort of simple but non-familiar to us here on Earth as uh, impact uh, processes fracturing the rock. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I would say that we, we're, we're still working on trying to figure out why these uh, rocks have, have fractured and behaved mechanically the way that they, they have. And, and I, would, I would hope that the, the mineralogy information we'll get from Kemen will help inform that, that understanding even a little bit more. And, and if I may ask a, a much more general question, uh, we've seen you brush the rocks and it turns gray. Uh, we've now seen you drill and it's gray. Uh, my question is, I'm looking at Mars now from Dublin. It's nighttime here and it's red. So, I mean, does this mean that if, you know, like one of these uh, medieval maps, there was some creature that could blow uh, across Mars on a global scale, uh, that, uh, you know, that this is just, this, is, this redness is just a cosmetic veneer, or am I reading this entirely wrongly? Well, I don't know about, about creatures doing it, but, um, but no, I, I mean, I think it, this, is, this is clearly the color of the, of the globally distributed dust that gets kicked up, you know, locally by, by wind gusts and dust devils and, and globally by, by dust storms and falls out of the atmosphere and sort of coats the surfaces of everything exposed on Mars with, with this sort of, you know, orange uh, color. And, and so it, it's, you know, it's pretty exciting to us that, you know, you just sort of brush beneath this, this, this surface veneer, as you described, and, and the rocks are a completely different color. So, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're sort of seeing a new coloration for Mars here, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an exciting one to us. All right, thanks. And we're going to go to a question now from Rebecca Boyle at Popular Science. Hi, sorry, I was muted. Um, John asked, uh, well, answer one of my questions, but to follow up on that, talking about soapstone or, or mudstone, what rocks on Earth might be analogous to this kind of environment, or do you expect, anyways, where, where they may have formed on Earth? I guess it's for, it's for Joel or anybody. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry. This is Joel. Um, uh, right. So, so a f you know, fine grain rock having this sort of grain size character um, can form in in a number of environments. Um, they can, you know, these types of rocks can form as particulate settles out of suspension from a, a water body um, that doesn't necessarily that that might be you know, the, the quiescent part of a stream that could be, you know, a standing body of water. Uh, it could just as well be, um, you know, ash falling out of the air or, uh, or you know, something like a, a glacial lust deposit where you have rock flour, uh, you know, being deposited as a, as a wind-driven um, process. The sort of contextual evidence that we have uh, from the other rocks we've um, uh, looked at in the area leads us to, to, you know, hypothesize that the most likely setting for this is is a is one a subaqueous one, one where water was involved. But um, you know, I think we're going to find out more about whether that is indeed the case um, once we get uh, the mineralogy of these rocks worked out uh, with our onboard analytical instruments. And so, piggybacking off of that, for the next drill target, would you want to drill something kind of similar to this, at least visually, to find similar 
types of rock, or would you rather look at something that's really different or that appears really different? Uh, you know, I, 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 boy, I'm not. I'm, I guess we would just have to answer that question on the basis of the results we get from the from the first drill sample. I, I was speaking uh, in answering one of the earlier questions. You know, we, we think we can identify. Uh, with our contact instruments, a number of you know interesting textural and chemical features in these rocks, and if it looks like you know we we missed one of these things, like these white veins or or gray nodules, then maybe we would choose to 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 drill another hole that that gives us a better chance of getting those materials into a second sample. Um, but I think we're really not going to be prepared to make that decision until we see what the first sample has to tell us. Okay, thanks. And I want to quickly mention that the news release that accompanies what's being discussed today in this telecon is now available online, and that's uh, www.nasa.gov slash MSL, as in Mars Science Laboratory. All right, our next question is from Roxanne Palmer with the International Business Times. Hi. Um, so this is probably for Avi and Scott. Um, I was curious what those two sensors on the other sides of the drill bit, what they're actually sensing, and like as like in a sort of a larger uh, question, what are the are there any dangers to this drill bit? Is there like a rock that could be too hard for it to drill through? Okay, this is this is obvious. I can answer those questions. So uh, if we go to look at um, Figure Ocon Two, we'll give you a good uh, reference, or even Ocon Three as well. Um, those those uh, two prongs you're seeing are the contact sensor and stabilizer uh, mechanism for the drill. And what that does is it, it detects when, when the arm has placed the drill onto, onto the rock. So there's a, a telemetry switch in that, in that device that indicates when um, contact is made with the rock. It also allows us to place on rocks of varying topography and um, the other function is that when the arm preloads the drill onto the rock, it, it holds it in place so that reduces the likelihood that the, the drill will slip uh, and shift during the drilling operation. <clears throat> and um, could you repeat your second question? Um, yeah, I was, I was curious, to, in a larger sense, um, you mentioned you're carrying spare parts uh, for the spare drill bits. Um, are, like, what's the hardest stuff that... Um, this drill can cut through. Is there any chance that it could encounter something that's too hard for it to drill through? Okay, I can answer that. So um, we can this drill uh, can drill strong, very strong basalts, but there are uh, rocks that are too strong for the drill to to drill. And we uh, have specially specially designed software to um, decide, you know, when when those rocks are too strong and to gracefully. Um, uh, stop the operation and um, you know move the drill off of the rock, you know, get the drill bit out of the rock and move the arm away, and then let us know the next day that this rock was too hard. Um, we we also carry the the, the spare bits on board just in case that something happens with the drill bit. Uh, we want this, you know, we hope that this will be a very long and extensive mission, and, and the use of the drill will go on for quite some time. And uh, because because we are on, on a rover that's going to be climbing a mountain, um, we want to have that extra um, capability in case something happens to the drill bit, and this will allow us to be more um, 
it really gives us more flexibility in our capability and really allowing us to use this, this hardware and to, to go for those very interesting science targets uh, that we find along the way. Um, could you give a quick, like, one example of a rock that might be too hard for the drill? Uh, sure. So, um, let's see, like a, uh, some, some unaltered, unweathered basalt art can be too strong, uh, like a quartz stone. Um, quartz was, would be typically when we found in our terrestrial uh, drilling to be uh, too hard for the drill to, to cut into. And so it just would not make progress, and um, we would, we, the autonomous software would abort, abort that process, that drill. Thank you. Okay, and we're going to go to a question from Reuters and Irene Klotz. Thanks very much, and uh, thanks for doing this. I have uh, two questions, and uh, probably for, for John or Joel, if you want to chime in. Uh, the first is um, about the, the uh, issue with the test drill. Um, just was wondering if you could give us some context for understanding that potential problem or limitation, if you have any concerns at all about the kind of long-term um, impacts on the mission. So Can I just ask? Oh, sorry. You're speaking specifically about the the sieve issue that that Daniel mentioned during his uh, part of the briefing, or yes, when 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 he was talking about the um, uh, uh, the conserv the that you're taking some conservative measures with the drill operations based on uh, something that happened with one of the test drills. Okay, great. So this is Daniel. And so if you guys go back to uh, Figure Illuminati one. Um, just to highlight, it is definitely, this is a chimera component, not a drill component. Um, it is a complicated turret, so there's a lot of stuff up there. Um, and again, just to highlight the, the sieve, right, the green, kind of bright green surface in the picture on the right, the cut of view, cutaway view, that's the element we're talking about. Um, and uh, as, as I tried to indicate, you know, based on the test results, to date, and based on how we expect to use the hardware on Mars, we really have pretty good confidence right, that we're going to be able to use this hardware through the prime mission and beyond. Um, the kinds of things we're doing basically reflect a change in stance and where we're being conservative. Right? So at RockNest, we saved, for example, for 60 minutes when we scooped the, the sand dune, we saved for 60 minutes to err on the side of guaranteeing we get everything through the sieve. We actually had Earth test results that most of the time, you know, rather often, we don't need a sieve for that long. Um, and so after we found out about this issue, uh, which came up roughly in November, uh, early December timeframe, uh, we realized, okay, now we have a different driver which says, hey, try to minimize the life on the hardware, but still be effective. And based on our test experience, 20 minutes of sieving is, you know, usually is enough to get enough material for Sam and Kemen. And so what we're going to try out at John Klein um, very soon here is a 20-minute sieve activity. We're going to take a picture of how much material made it through the sieve and then kind of, you know, if not enough material made it through, we will sieve another 20 minutes. And if it was enough, then, then we're done and we move on to the next step. Okay, thanks. I don't think I fully understood that initially. Um, and my other question is about the... Um, this place where uh, uh, Curiosity is currently exploring, and uh, um, I wanted to know if uh, if I, I understand that the chemical analysis is still to come. But if uh, 
if you were had these sorts of rocks and these sorts of um, chemistry that you think is there on Earth, uh, John, would that be a place where organics would be preserved? Um, I I think Irene that uh, you know for for us that this this you know is a it's a perspective uh, location. Uh, the color that Joel was referring to, um, all things being equal, it's better to have a gray color uh, than than a red color, uh, just simply because oxidation of you know chem- chemistry of waters that involves oxidation uh, is something that that we know uh, destroys organic compounds. So you know it's it's one of these things where what you're what you're doing is 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 trying to find those things that might be most destructive and and hopefully avoid them and so at the very at the very beginning here uh, you know we're, we're excited because this uh, you know this this points us in the, in the right direction but as you know I've, I've said over and over again uh, you know when you find exactly these sorts of conditions on earth and everything and you know much, much more that we still have to discover here when everything still goes right uh, it, it's still an accident of fate to, to preserve organics. And so, uh, you know, we'll have to separate at some point the, the pursuit of, of what may have been a habitable environment and separate that from what may or may not be an environment that preserves organics. And you know, obviously we're interested in the organics, we're focused on that, uh, but, but the two uh, are, are somewhat independent questions. And, and right now we're, we're sort of on the pathway to, hopefully characterizing this place as a habitable environment. Thanks very much. Okay, uh, we're approaching the one-hour mark, so I want to give a chance to people who haven't asked a question, so I'll be calling on you. And I'm kind of going to do a last call. If anybody does want to ask a question and hasn't had the opportunity, press star 1 so you can get into the queue. Uh, I'm going to go next to Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society. Hi. Um, I know you've done ChemCam analyses on the tailings pile. I'm wondering if ChemCam sees any obvious differences in the composition um, between the tailings and the rock, or is it just all average basaltic composition? Uh, you know, Emily, uh, this, this is Joel. I, I, I actually don't... I, I've not actually seen the, the chemical composition uh, that... That they have, you know, reduced out of their data set from the from the, the ChemCam um, analysis. So, I, I guess I can only speculate uh, and say that, um, you know, everything we've seen from ChemCam so far on these rocks, it, when it when it's targeting the sort of, you know, gray colored matrix of the rock, is is consistent with what APXS is seeing, and and the two instruments uh, are. Telling a story of a of a basaltic bulk composition, but but uh, whether they saw anything dramatically different in the ChemCam uh, of the drill tailings, I, I just don't know the answer to. Um, I don't know if John has any information that I don't, but it's just not something I've looked into yet. Okay. Uh, and if I could ask a follow up, I'm just wondering. Um, I know we have to be careful with with. Uh, calling names of colors and things that we see in space images. I just want to check to make sure, is the tailings pile actually gray? Is it just less red than the dust, or is it blue? What what color would you call it? 
think I'd call it gray. This is Joel again. Uh, the the images that you've probably seen are the uh, I, I believe are the um, you know the sort of color cor true color corrected. You know every, everything is sort of calibrated so that you're you're seeing colors that you would see with the naked eye. Uh, and and to my eye, they look they look gray to me. Thank you. Yeah, I think Emily, that that's that's something that uh, Jim Bell and the folks that uh, are interested in more quantitative spectroscopy have looked pretty carefully at. And the and the sense is is that it's it's very likely to be gray. Okay, um, thank you. And uh, what we're going to do, I will. We do have one question from Space.com. Before I get to that, I did want to get in one quick question um, from that came in from a viewer, listener on Ustream, and the question is, will drilling be done when interesting samples are discovered while roving, or will there mostly be find something to drill exclusive phases? Uh, I guess I can take that one, uh, John. Um, so I, I assume that the question is sort of directed specifically about, uh, at you know, will, will we stop and, and drill into rocks as we're driving away from this location towards the base of Mount Sharp. Um, and, and I think, you know, as John has said, uh, you know, we intend to have this be a discovery-driven mission. And I think that, uh, you know, as we're moving along, if we find things that the science team thinks are, are worthy of stopping and performing a drill campaign on, we will do that with the understanding that stopping and drilling and sampling is a time-consuming activity, and we have to balance that against the desire to, you know, reach our, our ultimate target, which is uh, getting getting to Mount Sharp and beginning to explore the stratigraphy there. Okay, thanks, Joel. And last but not least, we have Mike Wall from Space.com with a question. Uh, oh, yeah, hi. Thanks, thanks for, for actually sticking around and, um, yeah, and waiting to... Yeah, take my question. This is just another Civ question. I was just, yeah, just curious if I could get a little more detail on, yeah, I mean, how many operations, or, I mean, simulated operations, did that, did that one Civ on, yeah, on the test model? How many did it undergo here on on Earth before it sort of started to to fail? I'm just sort of curious about how much work it it was able to to get through before it started to fray at the edges a little bit. Okay, thanks. This is Daniel. So we have different ways of measuring life, um, whether it's thwacks or vibration or percussion. So it's a little bit complicated, but if you just kind of take a simple view of, for example, number of thwacks, right? Um, roughly 60-something uh, thwacks into the test campaign is when we started seeing the very first onset of the sieve problem on the Earth test unit um, that is the only unit that you know, had this problem. And so, and then we kept using that unit functionally. It was doing its job all the way through 120 plus addition, you know, total flax. Um, and for example, you know, it turns out on Mars, we don't have to flack all the time when we clean. And so we expect that that is going to be, you know, if the flight unit even behaves the same way as the Earth test unit, which we don't know it will yet, um, then we expect to get plenty of life out of that piece of hardware. Thank you. Okay. okay. All right. Um, that's the end of our Q&A, and that's also the end of our media telecon for today.